Hi folks, Jack Spirico here. Today you are listening to an episode of TSP Rewind. <laughs> Commercial free versions of past episodes, podcasts, blasts from the past. I put these up when I can't do a show due to professional commitments or rare vacations. These podcasts will appear in standard iTunes, Stitcher, and other feeds, but will be titled TSP Rewind Episodes and numbered accordingly. And today, folks, we are rewinding back to episode 2414, originally published on April the 3rd, 2019, and it was called Distilling from Hobby to Full-Time Business. So the way this show came about, I met a dude named Justin Jason Justice, who was putting together a uh, an event uh, for the distilling industry, for the craft Uh, beverage industry as a whole, and I actually went down to San Antonio and uh, served as a judge at that event. Uh, again, that was uh, that was actually in late 2018, and uh, going into 2019, he had planned on doing more of these. I don't know if COVID killed them or what, but he's still around, and uh, his company called Justice Label is still around, and they are a craft distiller. And so Jason is a guy that he actually learned the craft of distillation from his grandfather and his father, uh, old school Texas moonshiners. And he decided in this modern day and age where it's so dead gone easy to actually get a license as a licensed distillery uh, to go into the craft distillation business, which he did. And he's also an Army logistics officer, who served in uh, quite a few uh, overseas theaters. And so he wanted to work with uh, veterans, and specifically veterans trying to readjust to life and disabled veterans. So he staffs uh, his company with veteran labor, and he was running this entire event for veterans. And he wanted everybody that touched it to be a veteran. So... They also want to encourage veterans to start businesses because that's how we make sure veterans get employed. If you have veteran employers, then you generally get veteran jobs. It's just how it works. And uh, so he wanted all the judges to be veterans and successful business people in a wide variety of things. And I was reached out to and asked if I would come and do that. So, of course, I did. And talking to him uh, during that time, He, he's just a really great guy. And I said, hey, would you want to come on the show, talk a little about the events you're running, talk about your company, the classes that you guys do to teach people this skill set, but really to talk about how you can actually take something like this that was a passion of yours and go from, you know, doing it, you know, quote unquote, illegally in your garage or something like that, even though nobody tends to really care, to actually doing this as a licensed producer that can sell on the open market legally. And he said, sure. So I had him come on. And remember, what are we doing this round of rewinds? Skill sets. Okay, so how many skill sets are there in this one? Distillation is a skill set to produce alcohol that you can consume. Distillation is a skill set to produce alcohol that you can use as a fuel or a disinfectant as well. In a shit at the fan scenario. Um, being able to set up to the point where you can do that as a business, that's entrepreneurship. That can go into anything. Supporting veterans, that's not really a skill set, but I think actually the community organization around veteran support organization is something that we need in our communities on many levels, not just for veterans. So this one is 
function stacking of skill sets. And with that, let's go ahead and rewind back uh, episode 2414, Distilling from Hobby to Full-Time Business, originally published on April the 3rd, 2019. And remember, you can always support the Survival Podcast. How? Just do your online shopping starting at tspaz.com. Well, with that, let's go ahead and introduce our special guest today, Jason Justice from Justice Label Distilling. Hey, Jason, man. Welcome to the Survival Podcast. How's it going, Jack? Man, I'm glad to have you on. I met you last year uh, with the Veterans Alcoholic Beverage Competition. Got to come down to uh, San Antonio and uh, and meet you and, and be a judge down there. And, you know, kind of your story of how you got into distilling as a business was pretty fascinating to me. So uh, I asked you to come on and talk about how people can do that. And I know you've got some courses even on how to do that on your website. Before we dig into that, though, man, can yep. you give people just a little bit of, like, your background, like, Before you started distilling for a business, uh, you know, what, what's kind of your professional background? So my professional background, I've always been in the, the military space. Uh, I went through ROTC and got commissioned as an officer in 2009, and I've been in ever since. I'm actually up for major this year along with my wife. She's, she's an officer as well. And, you know, before that, I'd, I'd worked in – a lot of odd jobs. You know, I'm kind of a jack of all trades. I've managed a tattoo shop. I've worked as a uh, prefab metal building construction guy. Uh, never really got into like server or, or customer service type roles. Did a little bit of sales, uh, selling some, some used heavy equipment. And, uh, that's pretty much the, the whole background there. And, and military side, I've always been a logistics, uh, trucking mostly line haul uh, guy, and now I'm actually I work ports uh, for the Surface Distribution Command of the uh, United States. So we're, we're the branch that moves around uh, all the equipment for overseas deployments, uh, coming back from overseas redeployments, those kind of, kind of stuff going on. And that's kind of, kind of the whole background. So I got a lot of, you know, a little bit of engineering, electrical, plumbing, and all of that ties together very well for uh, doing a distillery. And then I got to work a production line after my first deployment overseas in 2011. I came back and I got a job with National Oil World Varco, and it was a turning machine shop. So we had a bunch of CNC machines and running pipes. So I got to kind of polish my production management skills, which now – helps me out uh, greatly when I'm doing these large production runs and doing product development and customer service fulfillment. Awesome. So can you talk to us about how you got involved with distilling? For you, it was kind of a, a family tradition thing, wasn't it? Yeah. So actually, uh, would you mind if I tell my grandfather's story, how it all ties together? Please do, man. So my my grandfather was born uh, in, the, in the early 19th century. I don't, I don't have his exact birthday. He's Uh, 87, just turned 88, uh, this year actually. And, uh, so by the time that World War II was coming to an end, he was underage to join the military and he was 16 and went in and, and got enlisted and he joined the army starting out. Well, by the time, uh, World War II had ended all the way and, and, you know, the, the armistice had happened and he, he never deployed for World War II, didn't, didn't do anything with that war, but, One of the outcomes was the Air Force broke off from the Army. So before it was the Army Air Corps, 
and then they just went into a full-blown their own branch and when he got out of his tour he was air force at that point so now it's uh mid 40s and he's got really nothing to do he's he's a, a poor man from west virginia so his options are coal mining and uh you know possibly breaking his back or dying in a cave-in or running moonshine up there uh, during that time so that's what he does is he starts running uh car loads from west virginia uh, mallory west virginia over to norfolk virginia to the shipyards and kind of ties in you know uses his military background to communicate with these guys and starts selling booze to the sailors and about that time he decides you know what i can i can do something a lot safer you know i'm starting to have kids my own family i don't want to get shot by revenuers or or you know have something else happen so he enlists back into the navy and korean war breaks out so he goes and and deploys and goes to that comes back and says well you know i've been doing this for so long now i just about have a career out of it uh I'll, I'll go ahead and finish out my 20 years and then vietnam happens and he gets trained as a as a corpsman and deploys with the marines over in vietnam and you know earned got his purple heart after that had a ship fire where he burned a lot of his body and had to do some skin grafts and stuff like that but he came back always a a good man to his family you know taking care of him and and did civil service uh the rest of his time there in san antonio and really you know he was a a character that i looked up to always uh growing up we would go up and see him every weekend we when we first uh moved over here to the states because my dad was military as well met my mom in germany and and we came over in about 91 so i was about four or five years old you know, we stayed in Pensacola with some family and then stayed up in San Antonio with him for a while over at Papa's house and moved down here to Corpus uh, once my dad got a job at the Naval Air Station here. And I've been, just been in Corpus ever since. And so we go from from uh, from West Virginia down to South Texas. And, you know, we get to go to uh, when I was about eight years old, I, I think was the first time I got taken on a road trip. Uh, back to where they they used to live, you know, the family's ancestral home in in Mallory, West Virginia, and and see some of the people that were still still alive from my grandfather's childhood and some of his friends growing up and the people that he had done this stuff with and walking through the woods and, you know, getting told, hey, that there was a still over here and, you know, this is where your cousin Charlie drank some and went blind and sat on a log for, for you know, eight hours till somebody came and found him. And, and, you know, it was just seeing, getting that, the, the whole mystique and, and the legend that surrounds that period of time with, as far as moonshining goes and bootlegging. And, and, you know, there's a real, uh, Americana presence to it. And, and it's, you know, you've got like Junior Johnson and all these big names of, of people that have participated during that piece as, as runners. And you've got a whole, you know, section of our, our culture, NASCAR, you know, was derived from that period and, and from that piece of the industry and, and that whole pushback of uh, against prohibition, you know, against the 18th Amendment. And with the, the repeal of the 21st, it, it just opened up the floodgates for creativity in an industry that was outlawed, you know, for, for a period of time. And that just kind of drew me in right there when I was eight years old and I started getting interested in it. And then when I was 14, uh, we 
we're doing another family trip go, going up that way again. But this time we passed through Kentucky and Tennessee and, and uh, southern Indiana and got to do the Bourbon Trail during that time. Got to see the Jack Daniels production facility. And, you know, that was the first time I said, you know what, this is something I want to do eventually. You know, I want to be a soldier right now. That's my main drive and my main passion. But something I want to do creatively would be distilling, you know, creating creating spirits. And that's where it just got instilled in me, you know, the, those young ages. And when I got back from my deployment, I needed some hobbies to, to deal with uh, PTSD because I was hit with an IED uh, while overseas and, you know, kind of kind of rocked my world a little bit. And part of that uh, therapeutic process was picking up hobbies and doing stuff like that. So I started building guns and started figuring out how to build a still. And I was doing that at my, my house for about three years until 2015. And then I said, you know what? I'm going to have a go and make a business out of it. That's an awesome story. You know, you bring up the tradition, and a lot of people do think about the tradition going back into Prohibition and the time after, you know, probably 20, 30 years, it was still really a, a thing for people to be to be running shine. Uh, but it, if you really yeah. think about the American tradition of distilling and making alcohol, I mean, it goes back to before we were a country. Uh, our founders oh, yeah. know, made beer, wine, etc., and they, they distilled. Uh, one of our first conflicts after we became a country was the Whiskey Rebellion. So the concept of, yep. uh, of, of Americans rebelling th through distillation is about as old as the country itself. Um, a lot of the, uh, the revenue that was raised uh, by the, 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 the private entities that helped fund the revolution was running you know running rum and and uh, and and wine and and whatnot up and down the coast uh in fact you could say yep. there's a big piece of that that probably has spurred the revolution in the first place so i, I think yeah I, i hope to see more and more kind of loosening of the noose i guess on hobby distillation and stuff in the future because the tradition is as old as the country and it's something people don't really think about yeah absolutely i mean you look at the the bill for Tun's Tavern, you know, while they're writing the, the first Continental Congress, hmm. you know, and it, it's just, you know, it's beer, wine. They, they drank more than there was people there, you know, and <laughs> it, it's, it just ties into our history, you know, and that's why it's, it's fascinating that period when, when we go to, okay, we're going to blame after world war one, we're going to go ahead and blame our country's moral decay on alcohol and the evils that, that that does instead of, you know, understanding, hey, we, we just went through a major conflict and a, and a major depression, you know, it was it was not the proper thing to do, you know, and, and then you had all of these people running, you know, stuff from, from Canada. I mean, the Kennedys were, were running Canadian whiskey back and forth, you know, across the, the rivers up there and obtained a lot of their, you know, a lot of these families that we have now that we can, that we look up to, they got their roots from that bootlegging period. Uh, you know, that's how they, they accumulated their familial wealth. And it's not a surprise that the, the country came together and, you know, we ended up repealing that amendment, you know, a, a few years later, because you're, you're absolutely right. It ties deeply to who the American people are at their core. You know, they, they don't want to be told what to do. They, they hate taxation without representation and, and they, they want to be able to, do what they want on their own land as long as it's not hurting or bothering anybody, you know, or impeding somebody else's rights. 
So with the distillation, let's kind of move into, I mean, like we said, this is an old process. It's been around a long time, but there really is a science to it. And what we're able to do today kind of, even though it comes from the roots of the past, we can do things today that, that you know, Thomas Jefferson probably couldn't have even dreamed up. So what, what is the science behind distillation? So really the science behind distillation is, it's ancient. I mean, it, this goes back. Uh, you know, BC, way before uh, modern science started getting getting uh, put together, it was actually started in uh, the Arabic Peninsula. They had what was called an alembic still, and it was a very rudimentary pot still. It was just a, a ball of copper with a onion head and a line coming off of it. And what they would do, they were distilling uh, essences from herbs and, and roots and stuff like that. And then figured out one day, hey, we can make alcohol too. And it, it's just been from there, that's, that technology hasn't really changed a whole lot. I mean, it's, it's still today, you'll find Alembic stills. Uh, there's, there's a whole section of our industry in the craft, uh, the craft spot where it's Alembic pot still. You know, and it, it just imparts a certain flavor and characteristic onto the finished product. And really, that's that's the driving force for any advances that we have made or, or different ways that we distill nowadays. Because you've got vacuum distilling, uh, which they basically they're distilling in a vacuum, which means they can extract a, uh, ethanol at a lower temperature. Uh, we've got steam jacketed. We've got electric power. We've got fire. We've got fractionating columns and, and plates and, and plate distillation and, and reflux columns and, and all of these different things, the, the single driving force in that is the finished product. You know, what, what characteristics are they trying to impart on that spirit, either before it's aging or after it's aging, or, or they just want it to come out? And, you know, putting stuff, they found that putting stuff in the column, you know, you can make a spirit in that way. And then that's how you get gin. You know, they, they put herbs and, and stuff in right where the vapors are passing through and impart those, those, uh, the essences of those, those herbs and spices onto a finished product because that's what they were searching for. And, and it goes back to the fermentation process too. I mean, the fermentation process hasn't changed. It's yeast, water, and a sugar. But, you know, what sugar you put in it, what additional flavoring you put in it, all of these have an impact on, on that final spirit. And that's that's really where you get to be creative is you've got from the very beginning to the very end, you can manipulate that spirit as, as a distiller and create something truly unique. But as far as the technology goes, I mean, it, it's the same principle. You're You're heating up and you're extracting chemical compounds from a solution. And that's it. You know, um, distilling has to be one of the most popular and, and fastest growing hobbies in the, in the country that's, that's still legal, right? I mean, if you think about yeah. it, it's something that's ha it's happening all over the place, and, and so far the government's got other things to do and, and has basically left people alone, almost a, almost a version of don't ask, don't tell type of thing. Unless you find, when you do see somebody get picked up for it, it's, some idiot that was selling it on Facebook or something, and you know, yeah, duh. And it ends like the last guy I saw, he was actually buying Everclear and making apple pie moonshine yeah. out of it, stuff like that. That's what he. So they, they've kind of left it alone. But you know, if you want to get bigger than making a little bit for yourself and your best friends, you got to go commercial to get 
legit, right? So what took you Absolutely. from hobby to business? What, what made you decide to make that leap? Well, you know, I, I really focused on my product first, you know, and, and it, it's one thing to have your, your buddies like it and, and, you know, say, hey, yeah, this is something you should do to actually being pushed over and saying, you know what, yeah, I'm going to make a business out of this. Uh, it's it's a monumental step, you know, for, for anybody, really. It's, it's like deciding you, you make a, a widget and everybody likes it, so you should make it and make money off of it. But for me, it was, I had, I had this, the recipes that, you know, my grandfather had used, he, he just kind of like blew through it and, and told me and then found, found an old notebook and was like, yeah, here's the ratios we used. And, and for the firm, and it was all fermentation side. It was nothing about the still. I mean, the still, they were basically, uh, disposable, you know, cause if they had to get rid of them in the woods, they would just leave them there or, or, you know, hide them somewhere and, and knock them over. And they were, they had all different kinds. They had the, the submarine kind with the wooden sides and a, a roll of roofing copper around it and a, a cone on the top. And that was it, you know, and they'd light a fire under it. And then they had other ones where they were tanks, uh, you know, around uh, basically a barrel with a copper head on it that they'd light on fire underneath. And, and so really that, that piece of the, the puzzle, I got to be creative on my end and and get to to make like a, a unique column because spirit from from you we can follow the same recipe you and i mm-hmm. here in texas on on the same equipment and you're going to get a completely different spirit you know it it's it comes down to the water it comes down to barometric pressure it comes down to just a milliliter a millimeter of difference on that copper length it, is going to impart a different flavor profile at the end of the day you know so it's it's kind of knowing those things and, and understanding all of that before you take that that step to say you know what yeah this is going to be a full-blown business and then really for me it was a matter of scale you know I, I was tired of doing it in the garage and you know staying up till three four in the morning and mm. upsetting the wife you know what you're coming in you're smelling like booze and then all of this stuff and it's like well you know i'm, I'm learning but I said I can scale this up from from this little uh 23-gallon keg to 100 gallons and make more product and sell it and be be commercially viable you know and and really what a lot a lot of this stuff is is being spurred by you, you know we had uh popular TV shows you know just recently come out and about early I think it was 2012 you had moonshiners coming out. So that really re-sparked America's interest in distilling, you know, and they kind of told the story and there's a lot of, a lot of fake stuff on there. You know, it's, it's TV after all, but, uh, you know, I'll, I'll sit with a, a buddy of mine, uh, and watch, you know, he's like, I want to watch this show with you. And then afterwards he's like, I don't want to watch that show with you anymore. And I'm like, <laughs> why? And he goes, it's like watching, it's like watching Apollo 13 with a NASA astronaut. You know, you're just like picking apart everything they do. And, or watching a war movie wrong, with you know? watching a war movie with fire <laughs> soldiers, right? You know, it's like exactly. You know, like uniforms wrong. You don't do that. No, that's not a thing. Yeah, I get it. Um, yeah. So, what is it? I mean, what is the kind of the hurdle to get into this industry? What is it like? How hard is it? What do you got to do? Are there different types of licenses, like a federal license or a state license? Or I've heard of things like nano distilleries or what have you. So 
What's what's that all kind of like? What's that landscape like? Yeah, so so here in America, every everybody that's going to do any type of distilling, whether it's for industrial purposes, where you're making like solvents and stuff for for other industries, or you're making beverage. Uh, so you've got an alcohol fuel plant and a distilled spirits plant beverage. And what I have is a distilled spirits plant for beverage. You're, you're going to be in one of those two categories. You know, you're either making alcohol fuel or, or you're making beverages and that's it. And you have to deal with the feds at that level. And that's, that's the uh, recently formed uh, tax trade bureau, you know, before you had ATF and, and all of that stuff, but under Bush, it, it kind of, it, that all went away and now they've got, they broke it down. So you've got the, the Tax and Trade Bureau, which regulates alcohol and tobacco and all the taxes and licensing and, and everything that goes along with those. So no matter what, you've, you've got to start with them. And the main things you're going to need is a piece of property that's properly zoned for business. To, uh, you know, whatever your municipality dictates, uh, whether it's a light industrial or a commercial, and you have to have proof of ownership of that property or permission if you're doing a lease that that you can operate a a distillery and distill alcohol there and then and then the next thing you got to do is um, do the actual permit application where they they verify all of this so what really helps is no criminal record uh you know because you're going to have to explain anything that you have in your past because they they do a very invasive uh background check it's just like getting an ffl uh for anybody that's gone through that process, it's very similar where it's going to take a really long time because there's, it's just stuck in a government queue process, you know, it gets, gets in it gets shuttled. It goes through a triage is, is the initial look that it'll get where they say, okay, yeah, you've got all of your documents. We're going to assign it to a case specialist. And then it goes to that case specialist who actually does the work on your account and says, Hey, we need this. You're, you're 20, you know, 15 tax returns. Uh, we need this, uh, you know, your bank information. We want to know, uh, who, what your sources of funding were, what your business plan is, how do you plan on gauging, uh, for production purposes and, and all of those little questions that, that come up that you don't really think about when you're filling out that permit. Cause you're just like, I want to be a distiller. You know, I, I've got a good product. I want to make it. Let's go. And, and that's really what ties up a lot of people. And this process already starts out taking over 180 days, it takes 180 to 210 days on average, you know. So if you have a problem, you're looking at longer. I think the longest I've encountered, somebody was dealing with it for 17 months before they, from the time that they had submitted their permit to the time they got licensed. And for me, I went through a nine month process and it was actually through a clerical error on their end. They were sending emails to uh, my email, but they weren't, uh, they missed a number on the end of my email, even though I had filled out everything properly. So I was on the phone a lot at, at about 180 days going, Hey, what's going on? And then they said, Oh, we've been emailing you. And I'm like, well, I don't have anything. Let's, let's figure this out. Let's get it done. And then uh, once you get the federal uh, permit there, Really, there's not a, a whole lot holding you back. Your state uh, permit will usually go a lot quicker. I think mine only took 40 days altogether from start to finish, and it was just following its paperwork flow, uh, which is, you know, goes to an initial triage, case specialist, reviewer, and then approval, 
and that's it. And then, then you're good to conduct business. Now, once you have these permits, though, you're filing monthly reports. Okay. You know, and, and that's part of the compliance. Even if you, you've got zero reports, you're not producing anything because you're still waiting on your state permit or something else to happen, equipment to come in. You still got to file those reports. They don't care if it's a zero report or not. You know, the government wants that oversight, and that's that's part of being in a highly regulated industry. You know, yeah, and, it's not and much state, different. It, it varies. It's just not much different than when you're in any kind of a business selling anything, filing state sales tax reports. You, know, you have your quarterly deadlines. Yeah. If you have zero sales, you still have to report that you have zero sales. Yep. Yeah. Except you're doing it every month. Every month. <laughs> so, huh. yeah. So it's not for everybody for so, sure, yeah, I mean, that, it's doable. It is doable. And and the, the good thing is there's services out there that, that do this uh, for a lot of these places. You know, they're like, hey, I don't I don't know anything about this compliance because compliance is a full-time job. You know, unfortunately, you, you've got to be on top of it. You've got to know changes when they happen and, and even get notifications and all that stuff. You know, and I've, I've been doing it by myself for three years, you know, and, and I've had – Salespeople come and go, but that's about it. I haven't had anybody administrate my books, you know, and I've always done the reports and, and, and dealt with the, the feds and the state in that regard. And it, it's a lot, you know, it takes up a considerable amount of time. You're spending four or five days just getting those reports done to make sure that they're done right, that they match with your last month's reports, that, that you know, everything jives and carries on. Because if there's a discrepancy, you, you can bet, uh, Uncle Sam or your state's going to come down and say, hey, what's going on? And now you're facing an audit type situation, which is you've got your routine audits and then you've got your audits for cause and, and you just want to stick to your routine audits as best as you can. Gotcha. So, like I said, it's like, so it sounds like something that's not for everybody, but anybody that really wanted to could. But what it makes me think of is, so I have a lot of people that we, we talk to that want to start some sort of a farm agricultural business. And I'm like, you know what? Raising chickens on pasture isn't that hard. Making sure that those 500 chickens get sold, that's the complicated part. That's the marketing yep. and sales end. So another option for people that want to get into this might be, let some, like, can't somebody else do it? Let somebody else handle the, the regs and the production and all, and maybe spec stuff out and, and go the private label route. Can you tell us about private labeling? Yeah, so... I mean, I, I was kind of exposed to this uh, look as I was researching larger companies. So that, that's always a good thing to do. And no matter what industry you're in is, is look at the companies that are in your space that are successful. So the one that I've always looked at and that I did all of my, my MBA work on was Diageo. And Diageo, it, you probably don't know who they are, but if I say Guinness, then hmm. you'll know who they are. They're, they're the parent company of Guinness. So they owned Guinness before it became worldwide. And they were the sole distributor of Guinness. And now they own all of these brands. You know, they own Smirnoff and, and a lot of these other ones. And they're, they're competing heavily with Brown Foreman here in the States, you know, so Jim Beam family and all those. And, and these brands, they change hands, you know, frequently over the course of their lifetime. You know, it's, it's the, The Beam family doesn't own Jim Beam anymore. You know, they work for the company now. It's those little things. You know, Sazerac owns a, a whole bunch. That's a, another French-Canadian one. Uh, and then you've got uh, – uh, there's there's a couple of – the Shiva's Brothers is, is another set. that You know, they, they think they just bought uh, Pinot Grigio uh, from uh, 
uh, one of the gallows over there in France. And that, you know, and it's, it's just seeing all of these things and, and how they work. And it's like, well, it doesn't really matter who makes it or where it's made or how it's made. You know, it's their marketing presence and what kind of resources they have to throw at it, which is it's a lot easier for them to go out and sell something than to make something and sell something. You know, so a lot of times what they do is they find independent uh, distilleries like mine where I've worked, you know, and working my hands to the bone, putting a product out there, marketing it, making it successful, and then somebody coming in and wanting to buy it off of me. You know, and really that's that's the, the end goal that everybody should hope for going into this industry is that you get so big that somebody else takes notice and wants to buy it off of you. And this way you, you're just running it at that point. But you know, that's, that's kind of goes back to your business planning and, and exit strategy. So private labeling has kind of really taken off because it cuts the expense of having a facility, cuts the expense of going through the regulatory process, getting permitted, uh, you know, having to be compliant every month with reporting and stuff like that. So contract distilling has started on an uptake and you've got uh, about 25% of the distilleries here in Texas engage in contract distilling in one way, shape, or form. Uh, even Balcones Distilling up in your area, they, they just recently came out and did a, a public call to brands that were, were trying to get started, but were going through their permitting process. You know, and that's, that's what we do as well. We, if I've got a brand coming in that, uh, you know, say they're, they're a distillery here in Texas, but they haven't quite gone through their federal process, I can go ahead and get them jump-started on getting a product to market. And by basically making that product for them, putting it into the channels of commerce that it needs to follow uh, legally and paying the taxes on it and, and the liabilities and, and getting them something on the market so they get a, a jump start on that. So once they're up and running, uh, they've are, they don't have to invest that time again in trying to, to do two things at once where they can just jump into producing and, and pick up where their, their product is in the market where they've already got clients. And it makes it a lot easier for them. And then you've got these other ones that don't want to mess with any of that stuff. And they just want to be, you know, a brand owner. Uh, and I work with some of those as well where they, they have no involvement in the production or distribution at all. And they focus solely on aftermarket sales. So once it gets through the wholesale channels to a package store, which would be your liquor stores like uh, Twin Liquors and Specs and Total Wines, they go ahead and they, they do all of their tastings at those stores and they're, they're driving sales. And, and really that's what they, they focus on is making the sale to the, the ultimate consumer or to bars and restaurants and hotels. And that takes a lot of pressure off of us as a manufacturer too, because now I don't have to worry about product getting sold. You know, I know I'm just worried about making it so I can focus on what I'm good at. And, and that's, you know, it, it becomes a mutual, almost symbiotic relationship where, each brand has its own sales staff and dedicated get dedicated to it, you know. And they're they're compensating you for everything right up till the, I guess the retailer purchase and, and there's a, a profit margin there they're skimming and by driving sales that's how they make their their profit. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, so so we as a as a distillery we I won't be selling it directly to a brand owner. You know, it goes it goes through my distributor, it goes through all the channels that it needs to go through. And and then if they go out and do marketing, then then yeah, that's where they they have the opportunity to make their profit their profit at the end. Okay, because I mean, what it makes me think of is like it, it's it's kind of depressing when I found this out. 
I go way back with the Yingling family, as in Yingling beer. I, I went to school with, with two of the daughters uh, that are now helping to run the company. And a friend of mine got to go meet old man Dick Yingling about a year ago and said, hey, do you understand, and this is beer, of course, but it's still the distribution channel for alcohol in Texas. And do you understand how many people that grew up in central PA are down in Texas now that give their eye teeth to be able to go down to the store and buy Yingling? And what old man Dick said was, mm -hmm. you know, um, the problem is because of Texas's distribution requirements, I can't sell my product, you know, about the same price point as Coors and Miller and Michelob. And for all of the, you know, kind of marketing shtick that they have as being the oldest brewery, that's their price point. That You know, anywhere else you go, you can go in and buy a 12-pack of Bud or a 12-pack of Yingling for about the same money. And uh, yep. my friend Nick told him, well, you know, they don't care. They'll pay my – and he said, well, I do. And so my thing is, yeah. like, if Yingling can't skin distribution in Texas when they're in, like, 30 states or something like that, or 20 states, like, how hard is it for a person to be able to get a product, let's say your product, your, your apple pie moonshine product, into a store on a shelf where you can sell at a point where you can make some money and the product will still sell? How complicated is that, or is it is it maybe easier in in the distilled you know the, the distilled spirits world? So distilled spirits world is it's easier here in Texas because okay. the laws vary from from state to state. So Texas is kind of unique in that it it has been uh, given given its right and it and it exercised its sovereign right uh, on its alcoholic beverage commission, but it went the route of licensing and permitting where you see a lot of these states are control states. Like you go to Virginia and you have ABC stores. Mm -hmm. They're run by state employees here in Texas. We've got private entities that are permitted by the state employees. So, so it frees up a little bit there, but what it also does is your distribution is controlled by private entities as well. So all of your distributors, uh, they, here in Texas, they've got uh, the package store folks. So all the people that have package store permits, they can join the package store commission. So they form their own interest group entity, you know, and, and the distillers have done the same thing. You've got a Texas Craft uh, Spirits Guild and, and that kind of stuff going on and beer and wine. And, and, and these are just the things that happen in a state where permitting happens is they, they form together because now it's like, hey, we've all got to watch each other's backs because we don't want a regulation to come down that's not favorable for us. Well, beer has gotten a lot of pressure because beer has one of the easiest sales laws for a distributor, not necessarily for the brew pub or the brewery. It's very hard. In fact, they, they're fighting right now to do beer to go sales. And, you know, it's just, you, you go to Colorado and you don't even think about it. You can go in and buy a six pack at just about every, every brewery you hop into. In Texas, you got to drink and whatever you buy. You, you know, you can't take any of it home with you. And distilling, we just won that in 2015, where you could sell two bottles per person per month out of a distillery, out of a tasting room. And you know, so so we've got specific wording for each class of beverage. So wine has its own laws uh, regarding sale distribution. What everybody can do at each different level of the, the wholesale, whether it's the manufacturer, uh, distribution, or a package store. So like a winery, 
they can literally go to any HEB here in Texas and engage in business with that store manager and sell them their product directly. You know, a, a brewery can't do that. A brewery has to go through that distributor to get into there. And, and really the distributors, they're, they're really hedging on their margins a lot more than anybody else because they're just basically middlemen that have to be there to carry out the regulatory compliance process. Cause that's, what they said, we don't want monopolies here in Texas, so we're going to break it up into a tier system. So manufacturers, anybody that creates a product has to sell to a distributor and can't sell directly to a store because we don't want them controlling prices. And so what it does, when you walk into a liquor store here in Texas and you see a Texas-made product, whatever that price is, go ahead and, and cut it in half and then cut it in half again, and that's probably what it was sold to the distributor for, you know. And, and if you understand that going into this business, you know, you don't get your feelings hurt where you're, like, thinking you're going to make 20 bucks a bottle on wholesale side. You're not. You know, you're probably making closer to 9 bucks or, or 13 And really that's that's the space in there is, you know, i got to figure out what is, some, what is a consumer going to buy this for? What is, what's Jack going to walk into Total Wines? today and see my bottle and say, this is a fair price. I'm going to go ahead and and try that today instead of my regular Tito's or Jim Beam or Jack Daniels, you know, and, and if I've, I've got that price point down, then I know what I can charge my distributor and what my distributor is going to mark up, which is, you know, usually going to be between 18 and 33%. You just carry over other industry standards. They're, they're pretty much the same. And then your package store is going to do the same thing. So, so, you know, for an example, I may sell a product to a distributor at, at $10 and that distributor is going to turn around and sell it to a package store for $13. And that package store is going to have it on the shelf at $20, you know, and that's, that's kind of how it all flows. But we also get taxed every level of the way. So mm-hmm. as long as I've got a purchase order, I don't have to pay my state manufacturing tax. Now, if I sell it directly, or to an ultimate consumer, then I'm paying a manufacturing tax and I'm paying a, a sales tax and a, a gross receipts tax at that point. And, and you know, it's, it's you know, uh, uh, Uncle Sam wants his sugar, you know, at the end of the day, and that's that's really what it comes down to. And, you, you're familiar and, you know, with the movie? You familiar with the movie uh, Idiocracy? Yeah. Right. We always when we say when we talk about taxation around here, is upgrade going to get his money? Right. I mean, yeah, yeah. Upgrade can get his money. money That's right. You know, there's penalties if you do not pay upgrade too. I mean, it, it, it's it's remarkable yeah. the uh, the analogy there. But yeah, I, I get it. Um, but it's do you know? Like I said, it's it's more doable than I guess that I thought it was. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about? Yeah, once you once you get back the the whole veil of how the three tier system works, and, and you know, there's about 32 states that operate in this manner. Uh, it, it really demystifies a lot of it. You know, it doesn't seem as daunting. You're just like, okay, I've got to do this. I've got to account for that, you know, and, and as long as you're doing a good margin on, on your end, I mean, the way I look at it, it costs me under $2 to produce a bottle and I'm selling it for close to 10. You know, I'm, I've got a pretty good margin. You know, I'm doing, doing all right at the end of the day if I'm selling wholesale. And if I get customers coming into my store and they're buying it at 20 bucks a bottle, I'm doing even better. You know, and, and that's kind of how you, how you got to look at it. What about distribution through, how does it work for distribution through like uh, bars 
and things like that. They they buy through a distributor as well, just in that same channel or clubs well, and that, stuff like that. Well, that's one of the one of the challenges that we have here in the state. So, like I said, the the beer, the wine, and the spirits are different. So, my distributor, if they chose, you know, if they if they're selling beer, they can go directly to a, a bar, restaurant, or hotel, or, or or mixed beverage permit holder and sell them those kegs or bottles or whatever directly. Spirits, you can't. Spirits have to go through the package store, and that's one of the package store commission, uh, you know, things that they had lobbied for and, and they have control of. So they, they regulate spirits with tax stamps here in Texas still. So anybody that's worked in a liquor store knows what a, a tax stamp is, uh, where basically anything going to a bar has to have this special tax paid permit on it, you know, and, they, and the liquor store has to buy these from the state, you know, so it's, it's, uh, it enables them to make that sale and it kind of gives a little bit of regulatory oversight because it's, it's tracing that, that bottle's life cycle, you know, okay, that bottle came from this distillery, it went to this distributor, it went to this, uh, this package store, it went to this bar and this is where it ended and, and we've got our money on each each check of the way, you know, and they're just going down the road and checking the block and saying, yep, did they pay here? Good. Did they pay here? Good. Did they pay here? Good. And, and then the customer, you know, is the one that has to end up uh, carrying that tax burden at the end of the day because you always roll everything everything down to the ultimate consumer at the end, you know, and and, and really that's that's what they did. And, and one of the things I'm, I'm pushing for here in Texas is, hey, let's let's relax that, you know, let's make it comparable to beer. Where because package stores, the problem is they're not going to pick up a craft product to put into a bar. You know they're going to go with their normal staple, you know, run of the line products like you're saying, Miller Miller Coors, Bud Light, you know, yeah. a, a Michelob Ultra. Those are the easy sales. They know they're going to get them. They they've got a bunch of free marketing material and stuff like that. You know, Papa's Moonshine. They're like, okay, well, no, no, uh, not everybody's heard of it. We don't know. You know, we like how it tastes, but they don't want to do that extra We've work. We've only got of, one know, bar willing to pick it up, and they're going to buy a case a month, and exactly. it's not worth putting on our line card. Yeah, I get it. Because And the problem with that yep. is it really takes away a very effective marketing tool for a new distiller to get their product out there because it's much easier for me to go find 30 privately owned bars and clubs, go in there and say, hey, here's my product, You know, we'll we'll do a Friday night thing. I'll send some pretty girls in to pour shots or something, and you know, we'll, we'll give us a start and to get that connection made. And if I go after thirty and I get ten, you know, and you look at yep. the the turnover of, of ten decent sized clubs in a San Antonio or a Houston or a Dallas, all of a sudden I've got name brand recognition. Now I got people going into Specs or whatever, going, hey, I want Papa's, you know, uh, apple pie moonshine, and I don't know what that is, but we'll see if we can get it. And now I can create pull through that distributor. But it's like they don't want to give up yep. that control. And I get it, you know. Private has good things and bad things. One of the bad things is it becomes somewhat of a, uh, you know, a, a, a backdoor good boys club, right, or old, old boys club, yep. where we're going to squeeze out the new people because I'm running, you know, $5 million a year through your, through your channel, and I prefer not to have competition. Yeah, and, and you see quite a bit of that uh, going on, and and you know it's it's kind of sad because what what you're describing is the way that it should work. You know, we we should be able to go out to bars and 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 do those kind of things. You know, those promotions, and we are allowed to under the law. The issue is the bar 
comes out and they say, well, yeah, we'll let you do that, but you got to pay us, uh, you know, 50 bucks for a table mm-hmm. in order to do it. You know, so now, now you already incurred an expense. You can't make any money as a distiller selling drinks out there because all the money's at the bar already because they had to buy the bottle. And then if, if it's a really bad deal, they make you buy the bottle back that you're going to be sampling <laughs> there because it has to have that tax stamp according to their permit. Yeah. You know, so there's all these little things that, that, that block, uh, the way that it should be that makes sense from happening because there's there's a regulatory animal yeah. in place that stops us from doing that and when you're a brand owner it's a little bit different because now you're you don't have that that additional expense you're going out and you're saying hey bar i'm going to help you sell all this stuff you buy it i'm going to sell it in your bar you know and you're going to make the money i'm going to make the money from them selling it to you and you keep buying it and listing it so so freeze up uh, quite a bit of resources. I mean, really, you know, once you start getting into distribution, uh, most people want to just be the, like the town, uh, you know, the town spot, you know, or tourist spot. I mean, I'm in a town that's kind of picking up uh, tourism now because we've got a lot of development going on with uh, Ingleside and Portland and Port Aransas down here in South Texas. And they're bringing in about 12 multinational oil companies. So you've got a bunch of people moving in and sitting uh, they elected me onto their, their chamber of commerce board to kind of say, Hey, how do we get more people here to town? You know? And I said, well, you got to focus on attractions and fitness and food. And really those are the three things that get people out of their house and, and down the road. So one of the business models in our industry is get as many people in your door as you can. Cause you know, I want to sell those $20 bottles and get that really good margin. And many places don't go beyond that and they're happy with it. And, and it works for their business model. And other ones want to do distribution where I want, I want Jack up in Dallas to be able to buy something that I make down here in South Texas, you know, and, and get it up that way. How do I do that? Well, now I've got to sell to a liquor store that I'm never going to be able to get to. Hmm. I'm never going to be able to support with sales or tastings. And if I did, it's going to be at a considerable cost to me because just to, just to do a tasting, uh, you know, you got to figure we've got to, pay a person to do it if we aren't doing it ourselves so there's agencies out here in texas that do it and it's like you hire a model who doesn't really know your your product doesn't you know they don't convey the proper spirit behind it you can do all the training and stuff in the world you want but they're not passionate no i see them i see them all the time hey would you like to try this well what is it they look at the model to tell you what it is Right, you have not. <laughs> yeah, you have use, not won me bottle. over, right? <laughs> like, well, this is you know Joe blows Jonathan. It's like, really? Okay, well, tell me about it. They don't have a clue. Uh, and and most exactly. of the people that take a taste of something like that in a liquor store, are just like, hey, some free booze while I buy my you know Seagrams or yep. whatever. So without yeah, having exactly. kind of the. So, so, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. So that's that's a hurdle right there in in and of itself, you know. So so somebody paid that that poor person to do that and and you know it's like you said hey i got some free booze i'm on the way to get my real booze now and and that's it that's the end of it but that's two hundred dollars or 150 dollars out of some company's coffers to have that person stand there not only that they had to buy that bottle from the package store they had to buy the ice they had to buy the cups you know, buy the T-shirt if they if they even went that far and, and got the person, you know, some kind of a, a dress up or gig. 
and the table and the tablecloth and, and all that little stuff. And if they're handing out pamphlets, you know, that's another expense. At, at the end of the day, you're looking at 150 to $300 to conduct a four-hour tasting of a product at a liquor store that you don't know is going to get its return, number one, or, or have any impact. You know, it could just be a bad day and a slow day, and nobody came through the liquor store that day. But you had to schedule it two weeks out, and you didn't know that at that point. Hmm. So there, there's a lot of challenge to that, you know, and, and how do you mitigate that is you can't be producing it and you can't be selling it at the same time because it just doesn't jive. You know, one person cannot do those two jobs. And, and it took me two years to figure that out, you know, unfortunately. But I also uh, got to share and document a lot of my experiences. And I, so I can say, hey, this works. This does not work. And, you know, that ties back to, to the distillery education that I provide. Absolutely. So can you talk a little bit about the competition that you, you launched last year and, you know, what it's going to be this year? Yeah, so, you know, it was our initial uh, event, initial competition, and the, the Veteran Alcoholic Beverage Competition is, is what we, we're running all the beverages through. So we're doing beer, wine, and spirits. Uh, this year I've got, I've got a lot better handle on the plan because it was like I came up with the idea in May of, of uh, last year and executed in October, and we had changed venues. We had changed uh, people that were, were working. We had changed vendors. Just about everything changed from about two weeks, two months out. Uh, and then two weeks out, we, we had a, another major shift that we had to deal with where we lost our, uh, our glass sponsor and they just kind of dropped the ball on us. So we were like, you know, dang, we can't even have proper, you know, glass, glassware for this event, you know, but we, we may do at the end of the day. And I, I think we got a lot of networking value out of it. And that was really my main goal. You know, I wanted to connect veteran entrepreneurs, successful ones, you know, you guys that come in and judge with the other ones out there at large, you know, and, and with the alcohol industry, you know, and seeing stuff like 14th Star Brewery up in Vermont connecting with Dan Caddy of Awesome Ship, my drill sergeant says, in Vermont too, and, and them being able to make a connection and say, hey, let's do some stuff together. That's really what the whole event was about, you know, getting those connections made and, and doing it. And this year we've got it so much more organized. We're, I'm doing weekly calls. I've got two coordinators helping me out. One's strictly focused on vendors, sponsors, customer relations, and the other one's running around and doing everything up there in San Antonio. So you remember uh, Corey Argenbright with J-Dog Junk Removal. Absolutely. Uh, he's going to be our local yeah, he's our local area coordinator now. He's running around. He's trying to get us. Uh, we're going to be doing like an official social uh, the night before. It's a single day event this year. We just said, you know what, we we need to cut it back from two days to one days. Cut a lot of the the expenses that just didn't work, you know. And you, and you never know if something works until you go out and try it. So so that's one of the things you got to do. But you know, I'm very fortunate that we had enough people come through. We had enough support from our sponsors and, and our team that. You know, we, we didn't break the bank on it. You know, we didn't go home broke, pockets turned inside out. We, we, we had enough to continue and, and say, hey, you know what, let's do this next year. Let's do it smarter and take all of our, our action, after action report and, and tie it together and who's with me. And a lot of you guys raised your hands, you know, and, I, and that, that's really what, what brought it home for me. And that was, that was the vision 
to, to bring us together as veteran entrepreneurs and actually work together and, and accomplish something instead of, you know, the, the space is very, it's very cutthroat. You know, it's, nobody has a monopoly on being a veteran business owner, mm-hmm. but there's some out there that think they do, you know, and, and, and it's sad, but let's get the ones that understand like, Hey, we're here. We've, we've been through a similar experience so we can relate to one another, but you know, that's it. It doesn't identify who we are as people. And we don't build our business on it's a veteran product, you know, cause I, I could sell, you know, we could wrap turds up and say, well, these are service disabled <laughs> veteran owned made turds, you know, and, and it doesn't mean anything, yeah. you know, and, and really there, there's no value in it to a consumer. And, and so many people don't get that, you know, people value, the value of an object, you know, what it's, I got to figure out what's going to make you pick up my product instead of that Tito's at what price, you know, how do I imbibe that value perception onto a bottle of my whiskey or a bottle of one of the whiskeys that I make for one of the brands that I work with. And, and, you know, you understand that so many people understand that, but they're not really assertive or they're out there or, or they haven't connected with the right people and that's what this event is for. You know, it's, it's for, for doing that and bridging the gap and, and, you know, getting to know what's out there in your community and, and who you can collaborate with. You know, you made a good point there about, you know, veteran business is not necessarily in of itself mean good, right? Like, um, and I yeah. think there's a lot of people like that tell you, well, I'm a veteran-owned business. Okay, but does your product work, right? Like, I, like there is a fraternity. I mean, you, yeah. you, you serve, you know, there is a fraternity. And the fact that you've served and I served, that does matter to me. But if your product's crap, your product's crap. It's like when it comes to marketing a product or a service, the veteran-owned thing is like the cherry on the top of the sundae. People appreciate it, yeah. they like it, and the Sunday's different because it's there. But if the Sunday sucks, right, if the ice cream's melted yeah. or it, it's ass-flavored ice cream or something, I, you're not going to sell it with the cherry. So the veteran component to a business is like this taking it to the next level, but the product has to be worthy of being taken to the next level. Yeah, exactly. You know, And, and it's like I have a military theme you know, for my, my tasting room and, and for all of our, most of the products that I do, but that doesn't define the product. You know, the product can stand alone on its own. And, and, you know, there's some out there that simply can't, can't say that, you know, they, they use that, that veteran status as a, as a shield, as a driving force for their sales. You Absolutely. Know? The first thing that comes out, you know, and for me, it's like a, it's like you said, it's the cherry on top. I hardly even mention it. You know, I'll use it, you know, if I'm going through like an application or something where, where it does benefit you, but otherwise it's, it's, uh, it's an okay, you know, it's an aside. It's, it's on the bottle. It says, you know, Hey, this, here's all the information you need to know about this product. And then, Oh, by the way, it's handcrafted by, by a veteran. Yeah, exactly. Cause like when you tell me your story, I am far more compelled that the way you're distilling goes back to your papa's method when he was, a, you know, run and shine in West Virginia. That can, compels me way more to want to taste your product than the fact that you're an officer in the Army. But I like the fact yeah. that you're an officer in the Army, too, right? So, like, yeah, I think we're on the same page there. And it, with that, you, you've kind of thrown out this new name, American Freedom Fest. It's like basically that becoming like a larger thing and the competition is inside of that? Is that how that's going to work? 
Yeah, so so the American Freedom Fest is like the the public event that everybody can come to. Uh, so we're gonna have like you know you get tickets at the door, you can get tickets online. We're gonna do the, the unlimited drink cups again. Uh, Corey's, you know, he's busting his ass up there in San Antonio. There was just you know so many people that we made contact with too late in the game last year that wanted to be involved, and I you know I I made the hard choice as a as a business owner, and I said you know what, no. I'm not going to let you dump your money into it this time. Save that money and dump it into it next year because we're going to we're going to revamp it and do it a lot better and get you more exposure that you deserve for being a sponsor or being involved. And you know we've got breweries that popped up between last year and now. You know there's there's a new veteran-owned uh, brewery there in San Antonio. We're talking with two two or three brewers about actually doing a limited release just for American Freedom Fest that they will be running all the way through veterans day. So, you know, it, it makes, makes sense for them economically. It gets a lot of exposure, a lot of like initial uh, beer sales and, and, you know, getting a lot of product awareness among people who really don't know about that scene. You know, they, they, they can go and say, Hey, yeah, maybe, uh, you know, they may be pub crawlers or, or the craft beer aficionados of the town, but it's always good to see them all come together and, and meet in a space like that where they can do the, their networking on the back end as well as getting some customer relation and, and getting some exposure. Got you, man. So what is your ultimate vision for American Freedom Fest? I mean, the ultimate vision is getting as many veteran entrepreneurs involved with these growing businesses in the alcohol space. There's more and more veterans picking up, uh, doing distilling, doing winemaking, doing brewing, and, and it's just growing at a – it's a fantastic rate. I mean, it was like 2,000% growth between 17 and 18. And from 18 to 19, we're, we're starting to see a real uh, market correction, especially on the beer side, where some of these businesses that have been around for a decade – are they're just drying up and disappearing because they overstretched their resources or they, they were following trends too closely and, and not following business fundamentals, you know, and, and that kind of stuff. How do we connect them with, you know, you? Uh, how, how do we get them on, on your podcast to get them exposure? You know, how do we get them with the T-shirt company to, to do a collaboration where, where there's a beer release with a T-shirt, you know, stuff like that? is what I, what I hope to see come from it. And not only that, you know, you, you getting to meet the guy in Florida, you know, the guy that's doing the, uh, the, the pod West thing, you know, and, and stuff that's relevant to you and your industry, not just coming in and, and saying, Oh, it's just all about alcohol. No, it's really about that fraternity of, of being veterans, you know, and, and working together and not, not having that identify us, but having it as a, as a common bond and saying, you know what? Yeah, we're, we're good. I like you. We're good people. We, we served in the same branch or we did the same job and that's great and all, but that's in the past. You know, we're here now. What can we do tomorrow to make it better for us and make it better for the people that look to us uh, in their businesses? Absolutely, man. Well, I'm certainly on board with doing all I can to help you make that happen and looking forward to it coming around this year. Now I was on your, uh, your just label uh, website today, just distillery.com. And I noticed for people that want to actually get in the business, you actually have online courses that people can take to learn about distilling, to learn about making moonshine, to learn about dealing with all these horrible regulations and stuff like that, right? 
Yeah. Yeah. And that's, uh, that's, that's from my personal experiences, how I ran through my permitting process, my licensing procedure, and I was doing it in house for about a year, all of, uh, basically all of 16 and 17, uh, 16, I started putting it together and I started have, I had my first class in, in, uh, October of, of 2016. And then all throughout 2017, I had people coming in from Louisiana. I had one guy come in from Arkansas, you know, and I had people like driving to come to a five hour course that I was hosting at, at, at my distillery, you know, and I said, man, I, I can be more beneficial if I packaged this and, and made it into an online delivery method. So we went with a, a learning management software actually called LearnDash, and that's that's how we deliver it. So I, I tested it out with some of the, the local classes that I was doing. You know, I made I made a long uh, a video for each uh, block of instruction. So, you know, you got a fermentation video. It's like an hour long. You got your, your distillation. It's like an hour business regulation. And, and all together, it's, it's five hours of, of content but it's like drinking through a fire hose, you know, it, it's, it's a information dump, you know, it's, it's what we do in the military, you know, especially as officers, death by PowerPoint, you know, but I'm, I'm, I narrated, I made it, make it entertaining. So, so you're not falling asleep through it. And it's just a lot. And being able to access that information at a whim is, is really what, uh, what appeals to a lot of people, because when I was doing the classes, it was like, they would go home I mean, they take a lot of notes, they get the handout and, and they go home and then they'd usually send me like a laundry list of questions over the, the course of the next couple of months. So what I said was, you know what, why don't we just address all of this in the content? So I, I answer all the, the common questions that come up. And then I also am available, you know, once you're, you're ready and, and you're, you're like about to pull the trigger on filing your permits and everything, you can sit down and call me for an hour. You know, we, we schedule that and we go over everything that you need to know and make sure that you've got everything you need before going forward. And then if you say, man, this is just way too much, I'll even do the filing for you. You know, we've got, we offer that service as well. And I just finished, uh, finished one up in Sealy, Texas over by Houston. And they got their state permit before they got their federal one. And then, they were like, oh, shoot, you know, we, we were supposed to sit here and have all this timed out. And and then now they've got both their permits, but they don't have any of their equipment, you know. Mm-hmm. So it was like making sure that they that their their timeline was in line. They didn't think it would go that fast, you know. And I said, hey, one, once we start, I'm, I'm going to make sure you're going to have the minimum amount of uh, corrections and kickback from the government because your stuff's going to be filled out right, you know. And and we've got I've got a whole video that basically – takes you through the federal permitting process from setting up your account with them to filling out your owner information to actually completing a distilled spirits plant beverage permit, start to finish to, to uploading documents and submit. And, you know, that's about a two hour video because it's, that's how long the process takes. You know, you're sitting there, you, you got to go through it, create everything, validate, and then you got to find all of your documents, which, you know, takes a lot of time. But it's helpful because now I had to stop my process midway to go find my tax return or my bank information or whatever, birth certificate, you know, if, if you're, you were born abroad. And I can start that video right back up where I left off and go right back to my process where I was. 
and finish it and finish it right, you know, and not get sidetracked. And, and really that's, that's the true value for it. You know, it is, you're, you're not going to be second guessing yourself. You don't have to sit there in YouTube. I mean, there's a lot of people on YouTube that try to walk you through and, and do stuff. And, you know, I'm guilty of using YouTube myself, but at the end of the day, you know, I'm not going to watch a YouTube video on, on how to build a, a chair or something. I'm going to find somebody who actually builds chairs and talk to them, you know, and say, Hey, you know, what's, what's the secret sauce here and, and get that. And that's, that's what we offer through those online courses. You know, it, it's basic principles to the advanced and we're even adding in where we're doing quizzes and, and uh, checks on learning and positive feedback and all that kind of stuff too. Awesome stuff, man. So tell people the, the two websites they can check out to, to find out more about what you're doing. Oh, real quick. Like if somebody wants to buy your product, like, it's a fairly small distribution area. I don't think I'll find you at specs up here in, uh, DFW area. Uh, no. So, so actually, uh, specs here doesn't carry us. Uh, I mean, specs owns like 25% of the package stores here in Texas, but, uh, there's going to be some, some big changes here to the landscape in, in the coming years. Walmart just won its distribution rights for spirits here in Texas. So they, they won a, a court thing, you know, and the, and the package store commission's fighting it. They, they don't want Walmart to be able to sell Jim Beam for $2 less than they are. Sure. And, and you know, that's, that's the whole thing. And, you know, but it opens the door for Kirkland's to Kirkland's to be able to sell their Kirkland's best and Sam's and, and all that stuff. So, so they, they had a limit on, on that for a while. So in Texas, I'm carried by every Total Wine store. So any Total Wine okay. store you walk in, you can ask for Justice Label product, and you've got it. You know, I think there's like six or seven up there in, in the, the DFW area and about eight or nine in, in Houston and uh, I think six in Austin. They're even building one down here in Corpus, too, which is, which is uh, you know, showing me, hey, they're, they're kind of spreading out. And what they're doing is they're acquiring a lot of these, uh, these established liquor stores like Goody Goodies. Uh, they bought up quite a few of those. And then, uh, Twin Liquors is your other giant here. And we've been, we've been trying to get in with them for a while. It's just, you know, we, we're not moving the, the volume that they expect, you know, and, and they're, they're, they don't want to mess with anything less than a pallet, basically, you know, at a time. But for that, that's a lot of work to get to, to a pallet. It's not a lot of work to make a pallet, but to be able to sell, it's like you said, you can, you can free range 500 chickens, but selling them, that's, that's another story. At least your bottles of uh, alcohol won't die on you, though. I mean, that is... <laughs> yeah. yeah and they, they you don't got a go little bad. bit of time, yeah. <laughs> you got a little bit of time to get them out. Uh, cool, man. So, again, uh, let people know how they can learn more about you and the work that you're doing, your, your multiple websites you have. Yeah, so it's justicelabeldistillery.com, and then we've got americanfreedomfest.com. Uh, for the event, if you're, you're interested in coming out to San Antonio this year, it's going to be September 14th. We're going to do it at the, the same place this year, the San Antonio Event Center. And we've got a, quite a, quite a lineup of things planned there with, uh, Corey from, from J-Dog Junk Removal going around and, and working his magic in the, the business landscape up there. I mean, we're, he's got some, some good ideas and we're going to, we're going to make them happen. You know, and we've got a lot of sponsorship support and it, it's going to, going to be a great, great wholesome event again just like last year and we've also got uh the the vabevcomp.com that is for if you are a brewery owner distillery or uh, winery that's where we do all of our uh, contest information for the actual beverage competition itself 
and that that will have all the external links for signing up, registering your product, and whatnot. You were kicking around the idea of opening up the competition to like homebrewers and whatnot. Are you going to be able to do that this year, or is that just going to be too much at this point? Or, I mean, we went well, through no, a lot of tasting. I'm just saying, as judges, <laughs> we we tasted a lot of stuff in one day. <laughs> oh yeah, I know. Yeah, we put put quite a bit of pressure on you guys. Uh, and uh, good thing is James James Van Pruin, he's kind of taken up the mantle on that whole piece of uh, doing the setup and making sure that we've got all of the that that the flow happens. Uh, a little bit more efficient this time, you know. Like we said, we took the AAR from from last year and, and improved, you know, a thousandfold. I'm just going to throw in is, is a judge. Far. It's a judge here, unless you're going to have more of us or something. The, I totally endorse the one day event, but we might want to have two days to judge. <laughs> I, just um, you know, yeah. I mean, even even doing the taste and spit thing, you know, when it's hard spirits and you're going through a couple hundred of them. It, you know, oh, there's yeah. a sublingual absorption of uh, you know uh, alcohol. <laughs> it, it gets there, you know. We did it. It was, and I'm not complaining. Yeah. It was fun. I just don't know if I could have done all of that in one day. <laughs> oh yeah, no. So we're we're actually breaking you guys up into panels this year. So so you'll be that. be able to choose what you want to judge. You know, so we're not forcing somebody who only wanted to drink beer or expected to drink wine to to go do gin and tequila, you know, and, yeah. and that kind of stuff. So each panel is going to be about six judges, and then they'll have a set number of products that they'll run through. So it's like they'll do, you know, some, we'll have a panel just for whiskey. We'll have a panel just for vodka, that kind of stuff going on. So so you get to try your, your favorite truffle vodka from oh, yeah. Duckworth there again. That was yeah. good. <laughs> I was like one of the only people yeah. I think I really liked. Actually, it ended up doing really good in the competition, but there were – Quite a few judges, I believe the term that they used when they smelled it was it smelled like prison sex. And I'm like, yeah. How do you know what prison sex smells like? <laughs> <laughs> But I thought that was a fantastic. We we uh you you were kind enough to let me uh, uh, procure a, a bottle of that, and a buddy of mine and I uh, have made many a, a truffle stuffed uh, olive martini with it. And that was fantastic. And that's part of what nice. I really loved about it was being exposed to so many different uh, labels and products that I had I'd never even you know heard of or even you know come across. And how much is really out there, and how how much this industry is really growing. And it's it's folks like you that are making that happen. And I know you do a lot for the industry beyond just what you do for yourself. You, you're you're a coordinator. You're you're kind of a Uh, you do networking. You, 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 I know you actually help other people promote their brands, et cetera. So uh, we need that, man. So I'm glad you're doing this. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you can't have that scarcity mindset, you know, especially in business where business is driven by relationships, you know, and, and you just got to foster the right ones. And, and you know, it's, it's all about the crowd you hang out with. You know, I want I want to work with people that lift me up. I want to lift those people up, too. You know, and the same thing with the brands. You know, I'll, I'll promote somebody's product right alongside mine. It, it could be a whiskey. It could be a vodka. I'm not going to put theirs down or, or put mine over theirs, you know, because there's enough commerce out there for both of us, you know, and, and, and there's enough money floating around for everybody. You're just, you got to be innovative and you got to c- compete for it. There ain't you no, know, scar- there, there's, there's no, no scarce, for, there's no scarcity of alcohol consumers in this country. And I think for distillers, right. 
the distillers are having the experience that the breweries had 15 years ago right now. People have kind of, and yeah. I think I think a lot of it is kind of your your older millennial generation. They have matured from the Budweiser and Coors, and then they they got you know into sucking down all of the good microbrews. And as they've gotten older and a little more sophisticated, they're starting to discover, hey, there's some really cool whiskeys out there. There's some really cool rums, there's yeah. some really cool bourbons, etc. Because I know, like, you know, I'm old guy, I'm old and gray. Uh, but, like, you know, my nephews and stuff now, they're all, you know, 28, 32, 33, and they are all into these different whiskeys and Texas whiskeys and stuff like that. So I think there's there's so much opportunity. You know, you may see it as market loss if you're Jack Daniels or Anheuser-Busch yeah. or whatever. But for small people, there is no scarcity. I mean, you, you know, you're trying to build a company to a couple million bucks – where a couple million bucks for them is, you know, the, the CEO's jet fuel budget for the year. So I don't think there's yeah. any real... Well, let, let, me, uh, let, let me back you up there for a second. You know, you, you say it's like a market loss to, to Jack Daniels or these, these big-name brands, right? Sure. Look at Samuel Adams. You've heard of Samuel Adams, yeah, right? Absolutely. Boston Beer Company? Yep. I'm, I'm sure everybody has. You know how much market, market percentage they have, market share? Probably 1% or 2%. It's not a lot. They just hit 1%. Okay. Just hit 1%. Since the, they've been in business since the 80s. Yeah. You know, so so to, to even consider, you know, that, that the big dogs are looking at you, you know, and seeing you as a threat or competition, Jack Daniels isn't going to come down here and, and smack Justice Label Distillery down. It, it just won't happen. Yeah. You know, I don't warrant, I don't warrant a, a, a second look. You know, I'm, I'm a fart in the wind to them. Uh, and... And really, that's you got to realize, you know, hey, I'm not as big as I think I am, you know, and, and you got to be humble and, and you got to got to accept that, hey, not everybody's going to like your product either, you know. Not everybody likes Jack Daniels. Not everybody likes those big name ones. And, Absolutely. And like you said, there's there's this shift. You mentioned there's this shift you... going on right now where we're we're tired of cupcake porter stout, you know, and people yeah. pouring Twinkies and <laughs> stuff in the beer, stout. and and they want to do. Something older, sophisticated, yeah. gin, yeah. whiskey, you know? Yeah. You know, you mentioned uh, Sam Adams. I remember a good 15, 20 years ago seeing advertisements from Sam Adams in, like, magazines and stuff where the guy drinking it had a face like he hated it. And and their their whole shtick was, yeah, you, a lot of you are going to hate this, but you should try it because for those of you that will like it, you're the ones we make it for. And I think yeah. that, 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 that program worked really good for them. Because people were like, well, what, what does that mean? Like, and basically they made it like, well, if you don't like us, you're not cool, right? Like, like yeah. you, you, you know, if you want to keep drinking Coors Light, go ahead. But if you want to try something that has flavor in it, you know, try this, and maybe you'll yeah. hate it, or maybe you'll be cool. That was cool. like the, the the original hipsters there. Yeah, yeah, they're hipsters before they were hipsters. Uh, let's not go down the hipster thing because I got hipster <laughs> stories, man. I found hipsters in Kansas. I didn't know they had hipsters in Kansas, but God. There's a hipster gram yeah. zero in Kansas. Anyway, man, I appreciate you being with us today, Jason. I'm going to have links to your websites on the show notes for everybody today. I'm definitely in on, on working with you uh, for uh, American Freedom Fest and, and the competition for 2019. Uh, I'll be there. And, you know, this time i got a little bit more lead-up time to help promote it for you. So hopefully we'll bring uh, a, a good contingent of the TSP community down there to San Antonio and have some fun together. 
And uh, I do thank you for being with us today, and I thank you for your service. Thank you. I likewise. Yeah, and as as we get closer, you know, even even if you just want to discuss the uh, the finer points of home distillation, we can get into that kind of stuff. How to how to set up your still and and you know exactly what it takes and and how to do it uh, do it safely. You know, that's the main thing is doing it safely. There's a lot of still builders, but like you said, it's it's one of the fastest growing illegal hobbies here in the United States. You know, and it's something. Something they're going to be they're going to be answering to you know very shortly in the coming years because there's there's a whole industry built around supplying these home distillers already yeah. you know it's in place and once the infrastructure is there it's just a matter of time before it goes mainstream you know well yeah I think what's going to happen is the government's going to do something they're going to come out and pass a it, it, we are right now with distilling where home brewing was in like the late 60s early 70s it was technically illegal. But everybody was doing it, mm -hmm. and then the government eventually said, okay, we're going to look really stupid here. Uh, so why yeah. don't we just come up with some sensible limits and stuff like that? And, you know, and, and I think that's where we are with this. They, they might, today they're so money hungry compared to back then, it might be, you know, you have to oh, pay yeah. $29 a year for a home license or something like that. But they're going to do something because well, there's too much money there not to. The, they, Well, they have a small alcohol fuel plant where you can produce 15,000 gallons in a year. And that is the smallest one you can get, but you can't get it for a residence. Yeah. You know, it has to be uh, an agricultural property. And, and that's, that's the only workaround that people have right now, you know, and that's it. But it's like you said, you, you don't, they're, they're not out looking for you making it with your, your one gallon air still in your kitchen or, or your, your five gallon still in the garage and don't put up a website people, you know, and start they're, they're, selling it on Facebook, you know, marketplace. Exactly. And they'll leave you. I mean, there are guys yeah, or, on YouTube <laughs> cooking moonshine on their stovetops yeah. with videos. I don't suggest you do that either, but if they're no. not bothering them, you know, it's, if you keep your mouth shut and I think that, you know, it's like I said, I know a lot of people in the hobby, a ton of people in the hobby. And yeah, You know, and there's there are some good stillmakers out there, and there's some that you know, I don't know. I I don't know about who you I, the guys you had down there. I actually tried to work out a a discount with them, and uh, they had the really pretty copper stills. But uh, some people you can lead them to marketing, but you can't make a market. Uh, Mile High is is oh, still yeah. I own, and I the welds alone that they do are artwork, and so there's some really good folks out there. But we'll oh, see yeah, if we can dream, we'll see if we can dig up some questions for you and maybe have you uh, do some uh, some just some straight up answers like straight you know short answers for other shows or maybe we'll have you sure. back on to talk about more from you know the garage distiller and uh, and how to do it without blowing yourself up and uh, not getting in trouble. Yeah. <laughs> But again, man, yeah, I, I appreciate you being with us today and like I said, we'll we'll have you back on and we'll definitely promote the heck out of what you're doing. All right, I appreciate it, Jack. I told you 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 enjoy uh, this interview. It'd be a little bit different, but you'd hear a lot about business, a lot about making liquor, and uh, a lot of interesting stuff from a really cool guy. And I meant what I said in the intro. If you guys have questions for Jason, I would love to hear them. Use the expert counsel protocol for this to make sure I see them. TSPC expert in the subject line. And so I got a question from Jason Justice. Tell me what it is. And we'll see if we can unofficially get him to answer some questions or maybe if there's enough interest, officially make him a council member. I really want to work with this guy. I really want to help him make 
the Freedom Fest and the alcohol beverage competition and what it can be, the, the number of veterans organizations that I was able to meet and hear about the good work they're doing there when I was in San Antonio blew me away. Um, I didn't realize there was so much support for vets. I didn't realize there was such a, a strong entrepreneurship community among veterans. When I got out of the military, oh, God, I guess well over 28 years ago now, I guess, maybe longer, um, pretty much it was like goodbye, we'll punch a hole in your ID card, see you, and you can go to the unemployment office and tell them you're a veteran, and they'll let you use a computer to look for government jobs. That was about what there was. There is so much going on now, and, and, and veterans, um, you know, not every soldier's a hero. I'm the guy that tells you that, but in general, the veteran community are people that have, have a, a concept of, of mission over task. In other words, when they're going to get something done, they're going to get it done. And it's why I've always liked working with veteran-owned businesses and, work, and, and hiring veterans. So uh, check this out. I think you'll like it. And make plans now for September of this year to get on down to San Antonio. And what I'd like to do is, if somebody out there can get with me, maybe we can do something that increases the TSP community down there. I'm happy to go down a day early. And run something that's kind of like, let's see the whole TSP community, or maybe a day later. I don't depend on what day it's going to be. And, and let's do something that lets us have a real presence there. Because I know there's a huge veteran community within the TSP community. And I know you guys like to have a drink or two. You can't lie to me. I know. I've, I've, I've hosted events here at my house. I've seen how y'all... Y'all enjoy your sauce a little bit, okay? So let's see if we can do something and make a positive impact for Jason and the work that he's doing uh, with American Freedom Fest and the uh, alcohol beverage competition with his effort as a distiller himself with Justice Label Distillery. And if you do want to learn more about the process, I, I can tell you I highly endorse the courses he has at his website. Links to everything is in the show notes today. With that, let's go ahead and uh, wrap this show up. Let me remind you that if you want to help support the Survival Podcast and the work that we do, it's really a super easy way you can do it. Just do your online uh, shopping through tspaz.com. Just go to T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com, and you shop there, and no matter what you buy, you help support us, even if he's going to buy it anyway. I do have for you, I said I was going to be bringing my whole fertility program around for item of the day uh, over the next couple of weeks because it's that time of year where we need to be getting those gardens planted and off to a good start. Garrett Juice Plus, I'll tell you flat out, there are two products in my fertility lineup that if I had to give everything up, I would, but these two I wouldn't give up. Garrett Juice Plus and Dr. Earth Premium Gold. With those two, I can rule the world with the garden. Everything else that I advise you to use just makes things better. It's the icing on the cake, the cherry on the sundae. Garrett Juice is my go-to foliar feed and soil drench. I use it in my aquaponic systems. I actually dump it right in the water to get them off the ground before the fish go in, get the nitro uh, nitrogen cycle running, etc. cetera, uh, get those minerals, those trace elements, the beneficial bacteria, It is my go-to for a reason, because it works. And I'm going to tell you right now, if you don't want to buy it, I have a link in my write-up today on the Dirt Doctor Howard Garrett's website. He tells you exactly how to make it. He started making it because a lot of people said, I just want to be able to buy this stuff and use it. So check it out, Garrett Juice Plus. I'll give you a breakdown of the difference between Garrett Juice, Garrett Juice Plus, and Garrett Juice Pro. 
in the write-up, but definitely this stuff belongs one way or another in your fertility regime. It will change the way that you grow vegetables in your backyard. Another quick announcement here as I'm wrapping up. Uh, I do have some openings for the Spring Pond Workshop. I sold out. Then I had a couple that was coming together, had to cancel due to a life event. I think I've already got one sold, but I do have, I did put out a, a, a post today. I got back to that person. We'll see if he signs up. He's got to close up business today, and I'll open up both of them again. So I have at least one as of right now, 3.30 in the afternoon on a Wednesday. Uh, the workshop itself is a, a, a Thursday and Friday, and those dates are the 25th and 26th. You can stay over to Saturday, and Saturday you got to go Somewhere. You ain't got to go home, but you can't stay here. Uh, Two-day workshop. I also put out the menu today in the post. Let me tell you what I'm going to be certain. I, I always say that we take care of people. I don't think people understand what I mean by that. So I'm just going to tell you what lunch and dinner are going to be for the, for the Friday, okay? Um, this is going to be a venison and wild boar chili that I've already made that we have put away and ready to go for it. came out fantastic. And I thought, what goes better on a cool afternoon for chili for, for a lunch break than cornbread? So Chef Michael, who's one of the cooks that's always been here for every event we've ever done, I challenged him to come up with a really good jalapeno cornbread. He came up with eight different uh, cornbreads uh, as a sample when he just did some house-sitting for me. I picked my favorite one. It's made with fresh jalapenos and whole corn and cheddar cheese, and it is fantastic. So we're going to have that chili and cornbread, some other stuff for lunch, obviously. That will be the core lunch. Dinner's where we're stepping it up. Dinner this year, we're going to have an assortment of game sausages. Everybody's getting three sausages. Uh, one is rabbit and ginger. One is venison and cherry. And one is duck and armagnac. Next up, thanks to our good friends and our sponsor, ButcherBox, and my buddy Daniel over there, they are sending me enough uh, prime rib roasts that I'm going to be doing herb-crusted, smoked, grass-fed prime rib. Yeah, prime rib for dinner. And uh, we'll also be serving Nine Mile Farm raised quail along with cowboy beans and some awesome stuff. Let me ask you, what do you think you'd pay for that in a restaurant, folks? Grass-fed herb uh, smoked prime rib, venison sausage, duck sausage, and rabbit and ginger sausage. I know a place where you can get that kind of cuisine. It's called uh, Lonesome Dove here in Fort Worth. And you would end up, two people went there, you'd probably end up paying for all of that, about what you'd pay for the whole event here, plus getting that. So we have, we have stepped it up. Again, it's a Friday and Saturday. I'm sorry, a Thursday and Friday. I think I even put Saturday in the article. I need to fix that. That's a Thursday and Friday. And uh, it's $150 deposit, $150 due when you get here. Uh, show up Thursday. We're going to go right to work, a little you know, coffee and safety briefing and get to work. And uh, we'll do lunch and, and dinner on Thursday and three meals on uh, Friday and uh, barter blanket Friday night and have good time like we always do. Smaller event. One or two seats open, if you're interested, let me know. With that, we get to our song of the day today. It's by a band called Five Seconds of Summer. Never heard of them. Young guys, uh, newer band, and the song's called Broken Home. And this is a song that probably needed to be written. It's written about a girl whose parents are always fighting and, 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 and basically are miserable in their marriage, and but they won't end it. And she has to deal with it. She wants to know, when did they lose their happiness? And it's destroying her. 
Because I have to say, I, I respect couples that get through problems and stay married. And I respect couples that realize their differences are ir irreconcilable and divorce. I do not respect couples that, under the guise of staying together and being miserable, make their children miserable. And I really don't respect uh, parents that, when they end up in a divorce, threaten each other with rights to see and be part of their children's lives. Uh, my my parents got divorced when I was in my teens, and I have to say that once they actually went through with getting a divorce and actually doing it, I was a lot happier. Um, and when they got to the point where they just went on with their own lives and left everybody alone, I got a lot happier. I have seen in my life so many times when parents destroy children, literally destroy them in these unhappy marriages and or divorces. I've had people that I know that I have a lot of respect for, that I think are good people overall, and come to me and say, yeah, I'm getting divorced. I'm like, I'm sorry, man, and have that man look me in the face and say, I'm, I'm going to take those kids. I'm going to make sure she never sees those kids again. And I've had to tell them, are you effing stupid? Are you effing stupid? Unless she's you know, laid up in a gutter with a heroin needle in her arm or something, are you effing stupid? And it's because they're hurting because they're angry, and they turn the children into a weapon against each other. I'll lose respect until you wake the hell up and stop doing something like that. As a kid that went through the same kind of crap myself, if you have children or if someday you do have children and you have problems with your spouse, you put the kids first. You put the kids first, always. They didn't ask to come into this world. You chose to bring them into this world, and when you do that, you make a commitment to be the best parent you can to them. And that means even if you're done with the with the, the, the spouse that, that you brought them into the world with, you're not done with them. And if you're a, a, a guy, that spouse may never be, you know, no longer be your wife. And if you're a gal, that guy may no longer be your husband. They will always be the child's father and or mother. And I have people in my life who, you know, they wish they at least had that because they have one of their parents that doesn't even want anything to do with them, that didn't want the responsibility so much that they walked away before they ever knew them. And when you try to pull a child away from a partner because you're angry with them, you're turning them into that person if you're successful. And uh, broken home means more than what people think it means. In this instance, you know, it's not what people think. Generally, when people say it's a broken home, that means that divorce has already happened and the home's broken, the family's broken. I think broken home it makes a lot more sense as a way of describing when the marriage is falling apart and the parents are focused only on their own misery and ignoring the children and everybody's still in that one house together and that home is indeed broken. If that's you, fix it. We talk about survival here, and I've said since the very beginning of this show, since I started it, that if we lose the family, we've lost everything. That survival is about the family surviving as well. And when people step up and do the right thing and take care of kids, that's an honorable thing. And if you ever end up in a situation where you're splitting a home, that other person is willing to continue to be there and step up and do the right thing for the kids, no matter what you feel, never get in the way of that. Because sooner or later, your kids will figure it out, and it will harm maybe irreparably your relationship with them. With that, 
It's been Jack Spirigo with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. hope she would pray she was waiting it out, holding on to a dream while she watches these walls fall down. Sharp words like knives, they were cutting her down. Shattered glass like the past, it's a memory now. Holding on to a dream while she watches these walls fall down. Hey mom, hey dad, when did this end? Where did you lose your happiness? I'm here alone inside of this broken heart. Who's right, who's wrong, who really cares? The fault, the blame, the pain's still there. I'm here alone inside of this broken home, this broken home. Roll it down on the wall, she was screaming it out. Made it clear she's still here, are you listening now? Just a ghost in the halls, feeling empty, they're afraid. She's the bruises, she's the pain that you brought There was life, there was love Like a light and it's fading I'm here alone inside of this broken